We started this podcast as a simple commitment between Casper and me. Once a week, we would sit in a room and treat Harry Potter as sacred, even if no one showed up. Now, we have 70,000 listeners we never could have imagined. We also now have Maggie, who makes sure that all of our local groups feel supported. We have Megan, who makes sure that we behave with integrity in the world. We have Chelsea, who produces the women of Harry Potter. And we have Ariana, who makes sure that every episode, every live show, everything we put out into the world is done to the highest possible standard. We make sure that we pay all of them a living wage. We are trying to be the change we want to see in the world. We are trying to only use fair trade merchandise products to give health care to all of our employees and pay time off. We are trying to save in order to plant a tree for every flight that we take. And we cannot be the company that every company should be without your support. With 70,000 listeners and 1,300 supporters on Patreon, that means that 2% of you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for your support. But we want to make it 3% of our listeners who support us on Patreon, which would mean 2,100 supporters. For $1 a month, you get an extra few minutes of bloopers. That's $1 a month for the feeling of being in the top 3% of our listeners. That level of success would even make Hermione happy. So join us. Be part of the top 3%. Join Casper and me in that room that gets more and more filled the more of you show up. We are so grateful that you are part of this community. I'd have sat in that room with Casper alone gladly, but I love having you here. Chapter 18, Dobby's Reward. For a moment, there was silence as Harry, Ron, Ginny, and Lockhart stood in the doorway, covered in muck and slime, and in Harry's case, blood. Then there was a scream. Ginny, I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, do you realize this is the last chapter of book two? Yeah, and I have to say, this is my fourth time reading Chamber of Secrets, but it is my first time liking Chamber of Secrets. So I want to thank you for going through this with me and for all of our listeners, because I really loved it this time. I feel like I've learned a lot from it also. So thank you, Chamber of Secrets. Thanks, J.K. Rowling. (laughs) Thanks for that. Now, you know, we really want to continue the podcast project, but it does cost some money to put it all together. So we are putting together a really exciting and slightly nerve-wracking crowdfunder, and we're going to ask for everyone's help to make this possible so that we can continue with the podcast and read book three, The Prisoner of Azkaban. And we want to make sure that we're doing it to the same standard that we always have. And it's been surprising to us how expensive that can be between paying the artists who help us design our website, write our music, design our t-shirts, design our logo, paying our social media coordinator, paying for studio time. And all of the, just the logistics, you know, accounting fees and 
the legal work that it costs to run a small nonprofit, which we've kind of become. So we're being really audacious and we've set two big goals for ourselves. The first goal is to raise $30,000 and the second goal is to have a thousand individual donations. So this is big work and we're going to need everyone to pitch in. So over the next three weeks, we're going to ask you to visit harrypottersacredtext.com and join in the crowdfunder to help us thrive and grow as we build Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Series 3. And now it's time for your story, Casper. When I was 20 years old, I was given an incredible opportunity. I was one of 20 young people from around the world who got invited on this boat trip to the Arctic. The World Wildlife Fund had put together these young people and we were going to learn about climate change science and communication strategy and activism. And so we all flew to Norway and arrived there, got on the boat, not really knowing what was going to happen. And off we set towards the North Pole. And it was June, so a lot of the Arctic ice melts every year. So the waters were open. And of course, as climate change gets more and more severe, more and more of that ice is melting. So we were able to go much further north, really, than we should have been able to. And as we were sailing north, it's daylight, not only all day, but all night. So for 24 hours, it's pure light. So one evening, I was just standing on deck after dinner, and I was looking out over this majestic ocean landscape and little bits of ice floating by here and there. And suddenly in the distance, a large piece of ice became visible. And as we got closer, I could see a polar bear. And I couldn't believe it. And everyone started to gather around and we could see this polar bear on this large floating sheet of ice just looking at us. And we came closer and closer and closer until we were about 50 meters away. And this polar bear was so majestic, so powerful. These are strong animals, but also so vulnerable. You know, this landscape disappearing, polar bears will go extinct when the sea ice completely disappears. And so I stood there looking at this creature and suddenly looking at that polar bear, I looked at the whole scene through different eyes. I felt this immense sense of love for the polar bear, for the landscape that I was in, for everyone I was with, for everything, really, this sense of love and awe that connected everything together. And, you know, I've learned that we only protect what we love and we can only love what we know. And I think that experience was so important for me in becoming passionate about climate change, feeling connected to this incredible animal far away in the North Pole. The whole issue of climate change, which is, of course, much bigger than just about polar bears, became really real to me. And so as we think about the theme of love in this chapter, the last chapter of the Chamber of Secrets, I want to be thinking about how love shows up in unexpected places, how we can love unexpected things, unexpected people, unexpected animals even, yeah. How do we love in this in this final chapter? Casper, I've never heard that expression before. Can you say it again? It's that we can't protect what we don't love. And we, we can't love what we don't know. Like that is such a beautiful expression or saying and it's really resonating with me. I even with our students that we get every year, I sort of am scared of them and hate them in the abstract and they show up and they're just humans. And I'm like, oh, I love you. Right. Is those moments where you feel it for the broader world around you are just so special. I'm sure the polar bear was like, what do these people want? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but before we really delve into this conversation about love and our love for polar bears, it is time for our 30 second recap challenge. 
Are you going first this week? I am. All right. But everybody, before we go, this is your last chance to vote this week for who does a better job with the 30-second recap challenge. And we will announce the winner next week. It's a tight race. It's a tight race. So go to harrypottersacredtext.com and uh, vote for me. So, Vanessa, are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. Three, two, one, go. They get out of the Chamber of Secrets and everybody, McGonagall and the Weasleys and Dumbledore, are all waiting for Ginny, Lockhart, Ron, and Harry. Then um, Ginny and Ron get sent away to go deal with things and they don't get into trouble. And McGonagall is sent to go do a feast because she's a woman and that's all women are good at is party planning. And Dumbledore does this big like explaining thing to Harry. And then there's a feast and Harry comes back from jail and Dobby gets freed because Harry gives him a sock and he's not a slave to the Malfoys anymore. And happy they go back. Well, I mean, I'm glad we got a political message in there because that's about all there was. No, there was like 20 seconds political message, 10 seconds of recap. Okay. Are you ready? Bring it on. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Lockhart, Ron, and Harry and Ginny come back. They've defeated Voldemort for now. Hooray! Um, the Weasleys are there. They get cuddles. Um, Ron has to go and um, bring Gilderoy to the Lockhart to the hospital and um, all the things. And then Lucius Malfoy appears and is like, I'm really angry. And then um, Dobby is with him and he's like pointing at the book and, and Harry figures out that he put the book in Ginny's cauldron and it's bad and then Dobby's freed with the sock and it's your choices that make you who you are, not your um, things. And they all go home. Hooray! It's like essence <laughs> of the story. You know, this chapter does have just my favorite quote. It's your choices that make you who you are, not your things. <laughs> it's just so poignant. So People beautiful. have tattoos with that. <laughs> uh. So excellent job, everybody. I am way ahead in the score, so feel free to vote for Gasper. I need some sympathy votes, y'all. I actually think you did really well. Thank you. So, Casper, where would you like to start talking about love in this last chapter? I feel like we have to start with the very opening sentences. The Weasleys have been summoned to Hogwarts. Obviously, they've heard the news that their daughter has been taken and they're waiting upstairs. And in comes Ginny with Harry, Ron and Lockhart. And I can only imagine what they've been preparing to feel. I think they probably expected the worst kind of news possible. But now they see her alive and well coming back. I mean, it must just feel like an immense relief more than anything else. I mean, I can't even imagine like really being there, being told that your daughter has been killed and then watching her just appear, not just the relief, like the shock and the trauma of it. And it makes me think about the risk that is involved in love especially, I think, in the love of a child. But, I mean, if you love something, right, part of your heart is just out in the world and is vulnerable to what could happen to it. So part of the Weasleys' hearts was in this chamber, and it came back to them, and just the immense gratitude of that return. Yeah. You know what's striking me, as we've talked about before, is the parallel between Ginny and Myrtle, you know, Ginny, although missing, presumed dead, comes back alive and her parents get to hold her close and watch her grow old. The same isn't true with Myrtle. And I'm suddenly imagining what it was like for Myrtle's parents, not only that she died, but that she chooses to stay as a ghost. And they must have had some relationship with her going forward. And Myrtle watches her parents age and die. And the whole theme of ghosts it seems playful and fun in the books, but actually, as you say, like, 
there is such inherent suffering involved with love and that actually these ghosts to some extent are also in that relationship in some way. And there's certainly no love in Myrtle's desire to stay a ghost, right? She just wants to haunt the girl who made her cry, which led to her being in the bathroom, which led to her death. But I do want us to come back to this theme of ghosts as we progress and spend more time with them throughout the books because I don't understand who chooses to be a ghost, how much intentional thought is involved in that. I'm just interested in that, and I don't think we have enough information yet to talk about it, but we're going to have to unpack ghosts, maybe a theme of haunting or something at some point. I love that. I love that. I mean, just going back to Ginny, you know, where we started, there's there's so many different elements of love, I think, in display, just in this little scene where she comes back. There's something about the Weasleys, I think, and this is why so many of us love them and think of the borough as a place to go is because they are so defined by the love and the generosity that they have for one another. But there's one small moment, which I think also illustrates the love that Arthur has for Ginny, where he says, you know, haven't I taught you anything? Never trust anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. And it's a humorous comment, but it illustrates he has been teaching his child and he's been passing on what he's learned. There's a love in passing on wisdom and a love in taking the time to educate and form these children to be the kind of humans the Weasleys will be proud to see their children become. Yeah, I'm wondering, though. So I wanted to bless Mrs. Weasley for this like beautiful moment where she where she embraces Harry when he comes out. But the thing that she says to Harry is not like, and you're alive, thank God. What it says instead is that Harry found himself and Ron being swept into Mrs. Weasley's tight embrace. You saved her. You saved her. How did you do it? And I wonder if it's because this desperation around Ginny and then with Ron and Harry, it's not, thank God you're alive. I love you so much. It's gratitude for their action, not for their personhood. But I think this is a perennial challenge for parents if you have more than one child, which is that you love them all and you love them all differently in some ways. And it's a real task to try and make sure that every child feels special and feels particularly loved. Oh, I'm not. Uh, so I, Molly Weasley, I think, is like the great heroine of this whole series, right? And I actually think her like heroic arc is absolutely worth tracking. And I mean, we're going to see in one of the last chapters of the book, her fierce defense and love for Ginny is like one of the great lines of the whole series. So I'm not criticizing her. I am observing exactly this, that the love is different. There's this pure love of relief when it comes to Ginny. And the love is manifested in something totally different with Harry and Ron. And it's complicated, right? And we don't love our children perfectly. And I think even if you are raised in a perfect household with the best parents, right, you are going to need therapy because certain Patterns are getting demonstrated to you that set the way that you see the world, and then you have to constantly be readjusting the way that you see the world in order to function as an adult. And so I just think that we are seeing three different kinds of love being demonstrated in Mrs. Weasley's reactions to three different people, as of course you will. But there's a maternal protective love for Ginny, and there is love and gratitude that for Harry must feel like, oh, I'm being welcomed into this family, and for Ron could possibly feel also like a mild rejection. 
This is really interesting because I think it's illustrating how love can take many different forms. And it's making me review that quote from Arthur Weasley that I just shared, which could be read as him being sort of angry loving, right? It's that kind of thing when a child is brought back to a parent after doing something wrong. The first thing the parent does is to punish, often, not always. And this could be Arthur admonishing or berating Ginny in some way. It's victim blaming. Right. Like, even though it comes from a place of love, and I don't want to go too hard on Arthur because this is a kind of instinctual reaction. But I'm sure Ginny feels like, well, thanks, Dad. Thanks for understanding how I was abducted by an evil lord. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot going into why Arthur feels the need to say this in this moment. One is just to reassure himself that he did everything he could. He's trying to convince himself. But Ginny, I told you, like, if only you had listened. And I think also you want to feel like, well, if I hone in on this message now, another horrible thing won't happen to you. He's trying to lend Ginny some agency and himself some agency in trying to prevent this sort of thing from happening again. But yeah, I really understand the emotion of watching someone you love hurt themselves and being like, I know better. Like, please just listen to me about this. If you listen to me, you'll be fine. This thing is bad for you. And then also trying to let go of that control. The moment of exactly this actually is I played basketball and I'm short, but I loved playing basketball and I was in a league and I got knocked over and broke my ankle. And the whole way, I love you, dad, the whole way to the emergency room, my dad reprimanded me. This is why short little Jewish girls shouldn't be playing basketball. And even at 14, I understood he was just upset that I was in pain, right? And it was a way of him trying to create a narrative of like, we can prevent this. Someone your size should not be playing a sport that has so much contact involved in it. And I mean, it's just it is constant pain and suffering to love someone. Right. Again, it's like I can't protect you. And yet I love you. Loving people's a little bit the worst. Right. And I mean, just think of Lily and James. They died to protect their child who they love. And created so much suffering for him because by dying, they created an orphan who has to be raised in an abusive home. Okay, but here's the thing. Voldemort chooses not to love throughout the whole seven books. And he still suffers. So I'm like, listen, life just equals suffering. We may as well love each other. And this became very Buddhist. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please. This is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. 
brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. So just bringing it back in the text, where else do you see love in this moment or elsewhere in the chapter? Well, I think paragraph two and three of the chapter is just a list of loving acts, right? You know, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley flung themselves on their daughter. Professor Dumbledore was beaming. Professor McGonagall was taking great steadying gasps, clutching her chest. There's just all of these sort of like beams of love being shot across one another. So I think this chapter starts with just so much love and ends with a lot of love, too, right, with this feast. Well, not only the feast, but the journey home. You know, there's this lovely moment where the text tells us that they played Exploding Snap, set off the very last of Fred and George's filibuster fireworks and practiced disarming each other. And it's this very everyday scene, right? It's the Gryffindor kids playing around, the Weasleys with Harry and Hermione. For me, it reminded me, actually, that You know, when I think back in my own life of what are the moments where I really felt love the deepest, sometimes it's extraordinary moments like with the polar bear, but especially with my family or my husband, it's really everyday small little things. You know, it's reading a book next to someone or it's having breakfast together on just a normal day. And I feel like that's sometimes when we know love the deepest is in the everyday moments. So the feast is maybe one of those extraordinary examples, but that little game of exploding snap, that might be the thing that they remember in 50 years time. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. But I also wonder just what you said about memory of like, those are the things that you remember in 50 years. I think that love maybe gets carved into you, regardless of whether or not you remember it. And those moments specifically, I mean, what you're highlighting there is moments of play. And it's in between time. I mean, it's the John Lennon line of life is what happens while you're busy making other plans, right? It's life is what happens while you're on a train. They are in this liminal space, this in-between space, and they're just playing. And that is love also, is just being able to make something joyful out of a commute and 
my grandfather is 96 and doesn't remember much anymore. And so I've just been wondering if that matters. Like, I know that I love someone when it's like, well, Aaron's is fun with you, right? Like, whatever it is. And regardless of whether or not you remember that, I just think it changes you and it makes you who you are. I love that, Vanessa. And I, you know, I actually think that totally relates back to the conversation about parenting, because that's really the job of the parent is to love the child. And this idea of formation, that you're formed to become the person that you are through that love. And it's constant little drips. You know, it's nothing extraordinary. It's running errands together. It's picking up so-and-so from school. That's what helps us become who we are. And to the memory point with what you just said is, you know, so many of my friends and family have small children now. And you just watch and there's such extraordinary effort put into making little children laugh before the age of three. And it's like they will not remember this. So what we're counting on is it getting written into their soul and their brains and their hearts anyway. We're counting on the fact that the hugs and the kisses and the I love yous, even before they understand what any of it means, we're saying all of this to them. So we're just we're counting on the fact that it matters in this really like, I mean, maybe neuroscientific way, but also it, it's really just an act of faith. My friends will take their like 10 month olds to the zoo. I'm like, they are not learning anything. They're not. They can't tell the difference between you and that giraffe. <laughs> right. But like, it still matters. It just matters. And we're all counting on that. And we all agree to that, even though for sure that kid is not going to remember that zoo visit. I just I don't think it matters if you remember it. Vanessa, this is reminding me of, of perhaps the most famous line in the whole book. You know, it is our choices, Harry, that show us who we truly are, not our things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me read it. For real. It is our choices, Harry, that show us who we truly are far more than our abilities. Uh, that's even better. That is that is a better version of the quote. But wh why I'm thinking of this line now is because in some ways it is a choice to love, or at least it's a choice to act with loving kindness, right? It's a choice to live your life with a spirit of generosity and kindness and love for strangers. And I think that's what I love about this quote is that it says that the choice is an act of becoming. Like you don't have to just stay where you're at in your loving abilities. Like we can get better at it. I mean, that's what this podcast is all about. Yes. And I'm really glad you've pulled us to this moment. I have like a conspiracy theory that I would like to share with you. So we got this beautiful voicemail early in season one from our listener, Julia Argy, who said that maybe part of sorting is aspirational. And she coined this term that I love, aspirational sorting. And that's what they're talking about here is this aspirational sorting that Harry sat in the chair and said, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. And I am curious to what extent Dumbledore might be a part of that. Hagrid says to Harry there isn't a wizard who hasn't gone bad who wasn't in Slytherin, right? And Harry knows from the very beginning, obviously, that he doesn't want to be bad. And it's not like he sits in that chair and says Gryffindor. He doesn't know what the other houses are. But I'm wondering if he gets taught to say not Slytherin because Dumbledore needs Harry to become brave and needs him to not be pulled to the dark arts. Does Dumbledore love Harry is the question that I have. And can you love someone who you are instrumentalizing, which we know that Dumbledore is instrumentalizing Harry? Okay, so here's a slight sidestep, which I think relates to the same point, which is 
you know, there's this whole idea of, you know, if you're falling in love, like the one, there's one person out there who's going to complete you in every way. And they're the other half to your own half or whatever it is. But I, you know, I totally don't believe in that. I think there are many, many people that we can form a partnership with that we can love. And there is something instrumental about those kind of choices of commitment, of being together with someone long term, because there are very practical promises that you make one another about financially, just very practically about, you know, I'll look after you if you're sick and you'll look after me if I'm sick. And I'll speak from experience, like once you're in that kind of committed relationship, it's not always out of love that you do the things that you do for each other, right? Like there is an instrumentalized piece in that. But I don't think it cheapens it because ultimately we're choosing to do those things, even if they're not motivated by an overwhelming romantic sensation of connection and union and oneness. There is still the intention of I want to do this for you because I want to be the kind of person who does this for someone else that shows up that is loving. Yes, but that is not what Dumbledore is doing. He's like, I want to do this because I want to be the kind of person who orchestrates a revolution to change the world. And but what if Dumbledore was a parent who, like, wanted to raise his kids to become activists in the world? Like, isn't that the same thing? Even though he knows that there's something particularly special about Harry, if he was just raising Harry to become someone who stood up against injustice, isn't that the same? Yes, except that a child can reject that, whereas Harry cannot reject this thing inside him. And I, I think this is incredibly complicated. I super, super don't have an answer. I just... When I first read this scene, I absolutely saw Dumbledore like, you know, like Hermione gets to go home to her parents and Ron has the Weasleys. And I saw Dumbledore is acting in a a loving and paternal way toward Harry. And I just think it's more complicated than that. I think that Dumbledore is also playing a really complicated chess game and is priming Harry. I think you're right. I think that's very fair. I mean, whether or not Dumbledore also feels loving towards Harry is a question to me. But it's it's no longer obvious to me is absolutely true. So that makes the moment with Dobby all the more meaningful. Because here we have a creature who has chosen to put himself in danger in order to support Harry. You know, sometimes not in the best way, Dobby. Enchanting the pudding, not a great strategy to earning Harry's love. Or enchanting the bludger to knock Harry off of his broom and maybe kill him a little bit. Not kill, maim. Just maim, just seriously wound. But, you know, Dobby just embodies exactly the opposite of Dumbledore, right? Dumbledore has this instrumentalized version and Dobby wants to be free, but in no way expects that Harry is going to liberate him somehow. And Harry, what an amazing gesture of loving kindness without necessarily love, right? Like Harry at this point has no reason to really love Dobby. Dobby has sort of been a pain in his butt, has certainly helped Harry to solve what's going on and been an assistant to Harry. But I think that Harry, by freeing Dobby, this is only an act of loving kindness. It is a loving act without a capital L love behind it. And what's beautiful about this love and this connection between Dobby and Harry is that it leads to this very unlikely alliance, which will save Harry's life. Love can blossom from the strangest little moments. Just little tiny choices can lead to connections that form and grow. And, you know, you you see that kind of commitment being built between Harry and Dobby here that Dobby helps Harry, Harry helps Dobby. Like, even if you don't remember all those little moments, this is the kind of trust and, and love that it can build to.
This week, for our spiritual practice, we are introducing a new practice, Florilegia. And for that, we are incredibly lucky to be welcoming back Professor Stephanie Paulsell to tell us a little bit about the history of Florilegia and walk us through how to do it for the first time. Welcome, Stephanie. So good to see you both. Um, so, Stephanie, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what Florilegia is? Okay. Florilegia were collections of bits and pieces of a monk's reading. And scholastic theologians did this, too. They called them sentences, and they collected all their sentences, you know, of what they'd been reading in books to argue for certain points. Monastic florilegia, though, were really a way of bringing your Lexio Divina, your spiritual reading, to bear on your life. So there are lots of collections of medieval florilegia, and one is called literally the Book of Sparklets, um, <laughs> so that, you know, the reader would be looking for the sentence that sparkled up out of the reading, and then they'd write it down. And once a bunch of them were written down, you would have a florilegium, and you'd be able to recall the things that you wanted to recall. Um, sometimes they were organized under author, like if somebody was really into Gregory the Great, they'd write down all the sparklets they found in Gregory the Great and collect them together. Sometimes they would be organized under themes, kind of like you all do each week, like if you wanted to write down from your reading the things you wanted to remember about hope or love or betrayal or friendship, you could collect them that way. And sometimes they were just random collections of bits and pieces of amongst reading. But then once you've written them all down, you have a new text. So when you sit down to read your Florilegia, you're reading a brand new text. And the sparklets that you found in whatever you were reading are shining in different ways. And that, to me, is very interesting. I, I learned this practice from my father, who kept a notebook in which he, he still keeps this notebook. Every day, he sits down and reads six psalms. He goes straight through the psalms. And every day, he writes down whatever verse sparkled at him, whatever verse seemed to reach him in his life in that moment. Um, and he's done this countless times all the way through the Psalms. So he's got notebooks and notebooks of different verses. But when he sits down to reread those bits and pieces, they're a new text. He's not rereading the whole Psalm. He's reading lines from each of these Psalms in relation to each other. So I think it's very interesting. Um, it will be very interesting to see what happens when you all pick out your sparklets from Harry Potter and then place them together in different combinations. I love this, mostly because I'm realizing I've been creating Florilegia for the last four years. I always, you know, in pencil, mind you, underline bits in books that I like, and then I type them up later because reading them again is just, it changes how you think about it, or it helps me remember the really sparkly bits from the text. I think a lot of people keep these kind of quotations books, or, you know, people have it on their wall, different pieces of text that they love. So it's beautiful to know more of the history of, so what exactly does it mean? I'm, it's Latin. Yes. Uh, flora is flowers? Yeah, it's it's like collection of flowers from your reading. You know, a contemporary practice that's like the building of a florilegium is found poetry. Um, you know, people look around them and write down bits and pieces of what they see and and create new poetry out of that. I had a student once who made poetry out of her clinical pastoral education 
job. She worked in an emergency room, and she wrote down verbatim the things everybody said, patients, doctors, family members, everything. And she created poems out of those fragments, and they were very powerful. So it can be a really – you can discover whole new meanings this way. There are whole Twitter profiles that are Florilegio, right? Yeah, That are just quotes. I feel like this is a very salient and contemporary practice. But so my question is, how do we then engage with the Mm Florilegium that we create? Mm -hmm. So Casper, you and I have all brought sparklets Mm -hmm. today. How do we then engage with what we've created? Yeah, that's a very good question. You could just see what they sound like next to each other and see what emerges rather than going through in any systematic way. That's what I like systems. <laughs> yes, yes, laws. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, there's, there's something about, I really like that idea of what can we see that's a relationship between the different sparklets mm-hmm. and, you know, do they actually point to different things, both of which are interesting, or how does one help us understand the other in a different way? Right. I, that's the bit I'm really excited about because one sentence can be transformed when you put it, you know, next to another. Yeah. So shall we give it a go? Let's give it a go. Okay. So Vanessa and I have both brought a little sparklet from this last chapter of the second book. And do you have something as well? I have a sparklet. You have a sparklet. Okay. So we're going to put three pieces next to each other. Shall I read mine, Vanessa? You read yours. And then Stephanie, you read yours? Absolutely. Okay. So mine is, so have you stopped the attacks yet? He sneered. Have you caught the culprit? Mine is... Bed rest and perhaps a large steaming mug of hot chocolate. And mine is Jenny. Whoa, this is so cool. (laughs) Casper, can you read all three together for me? Yeah, you bet. So we've got, so have you stopped the attacks yet? He sneered. Have you caught the culprit? Bed rest and perhaps a large steaming mug of hot chocolate. Ginny! What do we make of that, Stephanie? Help us. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Um, It's nice to hear things out of order because you sometimes hear different things. I mean, one is a very dishonest, sarcastic question. One is a very sweet suggestion. And one is the cry of the heart that underlies the whole chapter and the whole book and maybe the whole series. The cry of a mother whose daughter is in the hands of someone who cannot empathize with other people who cannot care. And that's a parent's worst nightmare, to have your child in the grip of hatred. So what do they mean together, Casper? Wow. The first reaction I'm having is is that they're all honest reactions that I've had to situations, but there are kind of different levels somehow. There's one which I was recently thinking through. I was in a tough conversation and I was really upset and angry. And my first reaction was a really similar one to the one that Lucius has here. You know, that kind of sarcastic, I'm going to prove you wrong kind of thing. And then Underneath that, I just realized, you know, actually, I was really upset and I was sad and I felt kind of ashamed and I I wanted just to hide. And then underneath that, I was like, oh, gosh, this is what everyone feels in a a difficult situation. And so that sense of, well, bed rest and a good cup of hot chocolate will probably be best for me. But really underneath that, again, was this kind of primal like, no, (laughs) you know, just that kind of just shouting of a name. So what I'm thinking about is just how these are all reactions that I've had 
even though they seem so different? They're kind of like Alexio Divina themselves because they they're taking you deeper and deeper and deeper. It's like being lowered into everything that happens in the chapter a line at a time. Yeah, what it's making me think of is it can also all be read as ways of caretaking that there's first Ginny is on this personal level needs to be taken care of and seen that she is loved by her mom in this very primal way. And then she needs some like bodily care and, you know, sort of food and rest. And then there also needs to be if you don't know where this line is coming from, you also need a system to be addressed. So, you know, we need to take care of the vulnerable by loving them, by caring for their bodies, and then also fixing the system so that situations like this don't happen again. Stephanie, is there a relationship you see between the three or something that informs the word that you chose from the two sentences yeah, we picked out? Yeah. The word that I chose is in italics in the book. Um, so, you know, Rally really wants us to hear it as a cry. And I think it's meant to be heard through and above and beneath everything else that's in the chapter. Um, it's one of the first words in the chapter. It's the first word that anybody says. And I think having it in italics, she means it to reverberate through the whole chapter. So I think I kind of hear the Ginny cry all the way through everything else that is said. And it, it peels the veil off Lucius's hatefulness and it, it makes Dumbledore's suggestion of hot chocolate more grave somehow, like more, more serious. It shows what a serious thing he's, he's trying to address with his hot chocolate and rest. I love this idea that it's a cry that resounds not only through the chapter, but really through the whole seven books. You know, and you've already pointed to the kind of parallel with Lily's love for Harry, but Actually, all three of these quotes are about Ginny, you know, the bed rest that, you know, she needs, the attacks which she has been carrying out under Voldemort's orders, and then, of course, her name. But it's making me think that, you know, so often we say, well, you know, these books should be Hermione Granger and the Chamber of Secrets. Mm -hmm. But really, that could be the same with Ginny and the transformation that we see of her from, you know, this shy girl who's in love with this celebrity boy to being the one person who he can share his life with in a way that no one else will ever really understand, in part because of her experience in these pages. It's lifting up Ginny as a really, like an archetypal survivor story of someone who transforms the pain of their experience to actually open their heart to someone else who has shared a similar thing. That's beautiful to me. It's also how complicated victimhood is. Like her mom has one response. The patriarchy calls her a culprit, even though she's a victim, you know, and then she's somebody to be cared for in an institutional way. So I think we're also seeing all of the different ways that when Somebody comes back to us who has been assaulted in any way, the different ways that people will respond to their victimhood. Casper, mm -hmm. it also reminds me of what you said at the beginning of this episode about love, which is that – say it for me again. Sorry. That, that we can't 
protect what we don't love and that we can't love what we don't know. Yeah. And I wonder if one of the reasons that Ginny's name is like cried out in this way to reverberate throughout the novel so that none of us can walk away from this book and say that we don't know the name of someone Mm -hmm. who has been abducted and taken advantage of. Now, everybody who has read this book knows somebody and therefore has loved somebody who has been a real victim. And, you know, she has been so silenced throughout the whole book. And here we hear her name ringing loud throughout the whole building. Like that contrast is so stark. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. Yeah. Stephanie, thank you so much for for bringing us this gift of Floraleggia. There's nobody I'd rather read with than the two of you. (laughs) This week's voicemail is thanks to Katie Bowers. After each episode, I like to think about who I would bless from the chapter. And from last week's episode, The Chamber of Secrets, I wanted to bless the Weasleys, and especially Mrs. Weasley. You know, in the chaos that is Ron and Harry confronting Lockhart, going down into the chamber, and so on, it gets passed over pretty quickly that the Weasleys are on their way to Hogwarts because they believe that their youngest child is going to die, or that she already has. And I can't imagine what they're going through. I can't imagine the fear that plopped down into Molly's stomach when she saw Jenny's name move from school to mortal peril on her clock. And as children, I don't think we often consider the amount of suffering that our parents endure on our behalf. And in last week's episode, you mentioned suffering and all the suffering that's going on in the world right now. And I think about suffering as a concept a lot from listening to Buddhist podcasts and reading Buddhist texts. And as you probably know, the first noble truth in Buddhism is that everything is suffering. And the last is our freedom from suffering by living the Eightfold Path. And so when I think of everyone in the world who is suffering, I'm overcome with this weight of despair as there is so very little that I can do. Um, But then I think of my not yet two-year-old daughter who in the middle of the night last night had a nightmare and she cried out for me and wouldn't go back to sleep until I got into bed with her. And so I laid in bed with her at 3.30 in the morning and very quickly she fell back asleep. Um, But then she started thrashing about and she was kicking me in my stomach and kicking my very full bladder (laughs) and I didn't sleep at all, but she did. And she woke up in a really cheerful mood and didn't seem phased at all by her nightmare. And so in that moment, I suffered so that she didn't have to, because I can ease her suffering. And I think of all the suffering that mothers in the Harry Potter series have done for their children. I think of Molly and how she has suffered, how she'll continue to suffer for them. And the beautiful thing is that this suffering, the suffering that we take on so that others don't have to, is often not suffering at all. There are small things that I can do for my daughter and for those around me. And while I may not be able to ease the suffering of so many, I can ease the suffering of those near me. And that's, and that's important that we all do that. Katie, thank you for that beautiful voicemail. You know, I think you're so right. I think it's, it's easy to be overwhelmed by the amount of suffering, you know, close to home, far away, all around us in the news. But it's good to be reminded that we have those choice moments where we can provide comfort, you know, and you refer to to kind of Buddhist texts and this idea of the bodhisattva who makes a vow to go out into the world and embody loving kindness wherever you go. You know, and in some traditions of Buddhism, the idea that the bodhisattva will make a vow not 
to progress to nirvana, but will come back life after life after life to serve anyone else who is in who is in suffering and needs loving kindness. Um, so I feel that in that moment of lying down with your little one, you were embodying that bodhisattva vow. So thank you. Katie, did you know what we were going to talk about in this episode? <laughs> Creepy. Vanessa, it's time for blessings. And who are you blessing this week? I would like to bless Professor McGonagall. She is having a very strong emotional reaction to the fact that Harry, Ron, and Ginny have been saved um, from the chamber. And the first thing that she actually says, though, after she's taking steadying gasps, clutching her chest, the first thing she says is, I think we'd all like to know how you saved her. And then the second thing she says to them is, so you found out where the entrance was, breaking a hundred school rules into pieces along the way, I might add. And I just love that everybody is celebrating the fact that Jenny is back alive, obviously great, and that the Chamber of Secrets has been closed and the monster has been killed. But McGonagall is still holding her, you know, steady candle, which is the safety of her students. And this has been chaos, right? Like Harry and Ron should not have been the people who went down into the chamber, regardless of the fact that Dumbledore sent them. And so I just want to bless her for remembering what it is that she has integrity for. I love an adult who holds on to their sense of responsibility, regardless of like the excitement of the day. They really hold on to that. So I would like to bless Minerva McGonagall for that. Who would you like to bless this week, Casper? Well, I was going to bless McGonagall too, but I feel like maybe I'll take this opportunity to bless Harry. Harry has this really big moment of realization when he's talking to Dumbledore. He says, Voldemort put a bit of himself in me. And... I guess this blessing is for Harry and for anyone who is realizing something about themselves that maybe they wish wasn't there. You know, sometimes we behave in ways that we know we shouldn't, and it just feels like it's beyond our power or it's come from somewhere else. Just to remember that just like Harry is able to kind of exercise that piece out of him by doing good in the world, I think so can we. And if there's something, you know, in our own behavior that we wish we'd do differently, to remind ourselves that we we can be different. It is our choices that make us who we are. So a blessing for Harry. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we'll be catching up on Owl Post and interviewing Scott Perlow, a rabbi who's going to teach us about a new sacred practice, which we will launch in season three. Please remember to donate to our crowdfunding campaign, which we will link to on our website and in all of our various social media platforms. Please remember to subscribe and review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred text was produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Casper Kyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Boll. And Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is part of the Panoply Network. You'll find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. Thanks to Katie Bowers for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Dudley, and Stephanie Purcell for joining us and teaching us all about Florilegia. We'll see you next week. Bye! 
There could be badges with Stephanie's face on it. I'm thinking maybe like a sort of singing Stephanie that like will wake you as an alarm clock just reading Flora Legium for you. That's not actually a feature of Squarespace. Oh, it's not a feature. Within the Wires is an immersive fiction podcast by Janina Mathewson and Night Vale co-creator Jeffrey Craner. Each season, we unfold a brand new story strictly via found audio from an alternate 20th century. Season 4, The Cradle, is a story about a mother and daughter as they attempt to lead a family-centric commune surviving on the fringes of society. Subscribe to Within the Wires at nightvalepresents.com or wherever you get your podcasts.